everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back for another week. I have Chelsea with me today. And Chelsea, this is kind of interesting because I met Chelsea. I work with her. Didn't know I worked with her. I just met her real <laughs> recently. But we've been working for, I don't know how long you've been there. I've been there four years. About seven months. Okay. So for seven months, we had been working side by side and I had not met her yet. And then I met her and then... uh Come to find out, then she uh, messaged me and was like, hey, I'm right next door. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. <laughs> but Chelsea is also wanting to start a podcast. So she's a coworker, she's a fellow nurse, and she's soon to be a fellow podcaster. So I'm really excited to have Yay. you on, Chelsea. <laughs> welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. Just so excited. I'm always excited about nurses wanting to get into podcasting, because I think it's just, for one thing, it just helps us to expand, you know, positivity and just continue to help educate each other. And the more people can do this, the the better, I don't know, I feel like it just creates this really nice sense of community and a a bond, you know, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We have three really amazing stories today, just the first one is really kind of funny. I, I, I have a sort of, we haven't talked about any of this stuff because I don't ever like to talk about it beforehand just because I want it to be spontaneous, but I have mixed feelings about the the news story. And then the, the bad nurse story is just, of course, it's disturbing. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they are, that's the nature of them. And then we have an absolutely amazing good nurse story that I still cannot get over. You guys are going to be so shocked when you hear it. So I'm looking forward to it. Yes, me too. So without further ado, I guess we'll start talking about the Barbie, the Florence Nightingale Barbie. What do you think about this? I think it's really cool because when I was growing up, you know, you had fashion Barbies and let's go to the mall or take Barbie camping and you don't have career driven Barbies and now they do. And I think it's cool. I think it's good for little girls to have aspirations in life. I do too. So and the reason I said I have mixed feelings about it is I know, I kind of know some of the history about Barbie and I never, I won't say never because when I was a, when I was a young girl, I didn't know any of that stuff. So I loved Barbie. But as I got older and started realizing some of the issues with body image that she's caused over the years for young <laughs> girls, um, it's just sort of put a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth about her. But... I get where you're coming from here because it's like pretty much like anything else. Sometimes things start out with um, maybe the wrong intentions or not in a good place, but it seems like Mattel is trying to take her image into a little different place and bring it into a more modern, hopefully, way of looking at females and, you know, being empowered instead of being an object. Oh, yeah. So she originally, this is what I, I thought was really fascinating because I, I knew that there was a lot of negativity about where she came from. I couldn't quite remember. So I, I looked it up and there's a Time uh, Time article on time.com about the history of Barbie. And so what this article says is that there was an original doll or I guess comic strip character that she's designed after this character from Germany in 1952 was named Lily, and she was a high-end call girl. What? Yes. That's what is, is, it's just, you know, the beginning is kind of like, but like I said, there's a lot, there are a lot of really good things in life that started out, if you can go all the way back to the beginning, kind of sketchy, you know, so. Yeah. so I feel could, like if. Yeah, My mom knew that Barbie started out as a prostitute. She yeah. probably would not have wanted me to play with her. <laughs> I know. And that's the thing. It's If you go back and look at the, at the history, it's a little unsettling. And yeah, it's kind of, and, and, you, and it's, there's no wonder that her waist is, is so incredibly small that if a woman was really structured that way, she wouldn't have room for all of her internal organs. No. <laughs> so, you know, or be able to breathe. Right. So the little dolls, so those do- the dolls that they created in Germany uh, that were kind of uh, to go along with this comic strip, Build Lily, I think is the name of it, they were sold in tobacco shops, bars, and adult-themed toy stores. That's so weird. Yeah. Men would get them as gag- 
gag gifts at bachelor parties, put them on their car dashboard. You know, you imagine the little hula dancer and that sort of thing, dangled them from the rearview mirror, gave them to a girlfriend as a suggestive keepsake. Ugh. And yeah, that that's I knew there was like some history that was a little questionable about Barbie. And so when I went and looked this up and I was like, okay, yeah, I do remember that why this is she kind of still puts a bad taste in my mouth. But let's give Mattel some credit because they obviously are trying to turn things around a little bit. And who among us have not, you know, had a, a little bit of a shady history? Okay. Yeah. I've had I've made some mistakes in my life. Barbie, maybe that's where she came from. And now look at her. (laughs) (laughs) She's a nurse, okay? Yeah. That's the thing. We can all, I kind of, you know, really, I've I've almost talked myself into kind of liking it because it's sort of, (laughs) it is all women, you know, or, or a lot of women, let's say that, that you can have a past that's, you know, maybe different or alternative or however you want to see it. And then come out of that and make yourself better, you know, lift yourself yeah. up and I've always been improve. a proponent of you cannot have your past be an excuse for your circumstances because you can always overcome that past yeah. and do better things. So maybe that's what Mattel did. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing is I think that we can spin this this way. I think it's very easy to spin it this way because it's so true. But I I'm not sure that's really what Mattel had in mind, but that's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> they're they're there to make money, and let, let's just be realistic. They are there to make money. It's just it's a corporation, so that's okay. Oh, yeah. But I love Florence Nightingale, of course. We all love Florence Nightingale, who who can be a nurse and not love her. So one thing I will say is she kind of looks like Princess Leia at first. When she I, does. <laughs> when, when I first, I, when I literally, the first time I saw her, I thought it was Princess Leia. I thought it was a Princess Leia Barbie. And then I went, wait, what is she wearing like the dress and then I realized it said something about you know a hospital like because it says yeah Scuttery Hospital yeah and I went wait a minute who is this so I <laughs> I mean not that I would recognize Florence Nightingale I mean we've all seen those pictures but it is a doll it's just the hair is what's doing it I think it does definitely look like Princess Leia and ironically I just started watching Star Wars for the first time ever oh, this really? past month yeah yeah, so I can make that connection. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you guys don't know, if you haven't seen Star Wars or for some reason been living under a rock for the past <laughs> 20 years, <laughs> you should go look it up because I think you got you would if you put the two side by side. In fact, I probably should make something and put it on social media just because I'm like, wow, that is that's crazy, the similarity between the two characters. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Mattel didn't just use the same head for the two, if they have a, <laughs> yeah. you know, they probably have a, a Princess Leia one. It's about the same exact head. Yeah. It probably is. <laughs> Their creative dire- director probably got a little escape on that one. Yeah, they were like, you know what? This looks, nobody will ever notice. It's no. you know, short brown hair. Yeah. And a bun. The little donut rolls or whatever on the <laughs> yeah. side of her head. And their, her lamp looks really weird. I noticed that when I was looking at the pictures of it, and it just, it kind of looks like a weird soup can. It doesn't look like a lamp. Yeah. No, it looks like a soup can with a handle. Yeah, so that's that's different too. But at the end of the day, Mattel is obviously trying to promote positivity and empowerment for women, and I can appreciate that. So, Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad that they did this, and I'm, I'm glad that they are highlighting nurses and, of course, our original nurse that we all look up to. So I'll just say that uh, while I kind of had mixed feelings about it, I'm happy that they did it. I think it's really good. And yeah. I'm glad they added a story on the back because most kids aren't going to know who she is. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, and that may be that way for—because this is a series that they're right. doing— um, about inspiring women. So I am sure that there are going to be, and I don't know if there were, I didn't even look to see if there were other inspiring women dolls that have already come out. But that if they're, whoever they are, I'm sure children, you know, may not be familiar with them. So it's wonderful. It's like a little history lesson for them. Yeah. And I think it's cool too, because, you know, when you're a kid, oh, I want to grow up and be a doctor. I wanted to be a nurse because my mom was a nurse. And there's, 
you know, nursing gets so sexualized with outfits that yes. I don't feel like there were little kid nursing outfits. So now they have a little nursing Barbie doll that they can play with. Yes, that's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, it's a little, she's a little over the top appropriate because her dress goes yeah. away. But that's, that's the way it was back then. <laughs> oh. I guess that kind of wraps it up for our news story. I wanted to talk just a little bit about our sponsor because, of course, we appreciate so much Comrade Socks and them coming aboard to help sponsor our little podcast. And I was so excited when I got an email from them asking about sponsoring because I I wear compression socks every single time I work. So this I was like, this is easy as long as, and they were like, we'll send you some socks. And I thought, okay, this is going to be easy for me as long as their socks are good quality and they work. I'll have no problem promoting compression socks. <laughs> and then when I got theirs, I was like, whoa. As soon as I held them up, I knew. I could tell they were like really good quality. It's, it's These are not some cheap compression socks that you just buy off Amazon. They're really good quality. <laughs> like they've got the reinforced toe. And and then I, just in reading about them, you can go on their website and read about them at comradesocks.com. But it's like um, they put them through the ringer. They put them through some sort of technology, like Swiss-tastic technology. David and I were laughing about that the other day because we were like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds really bad. <laughs> some kind of torture. They put the socks through. <laughs> One thing that I always tell new grads or nursing students is like, you even before you even start nursing school, because I, my, I killed my feet in nursing school from clinicals, from standing in one place for so long because you just kind of stand there like charting and stuff. And oh my goodness, when I found compression socks, I was like, oh, this does help. And then when I one day got in a hurry and didn't wear them, I was so sorry. And I was like, I'll never do that again. I will <laughs> yeah. always wear compression socks. So yeah. my yeah, mom I've just discovered them. And she's been a nurse since 1993. Oh. And yeah, she gave me a pair that she didn't like. They were too tight on her, but she was like, these are the best things in the world. And I was like, mom, you've been a nurse forever. Where have you been? <laughs> How did you not know? And the thing is, uh, I love too about them is Comrade does like cute little designs and stuff. And one thing that they promote a lot is to not just wear them you know, at the hospital, like Wear them if you have a sit-down job where you're just sitting for long periods of time. You can have circulation issues. Oh, and yeah. So that they will help with that, too, because you're just sitting there. If you're traveling, if you're going to be on an airplane, if you're going to be in a car, you know, riding or uh, for long extended periods of time, I never even thought about that. And so they are really, actually really cute with, you can wear them with shorts. You can wear them with pants kind of rolled up, and they're really cute that way, too. So... I wonder if they'd be good for pregnant women, too. Oh, I'm sure. You know, that's actually a, an issue that some pregnant pregnant women have is with blood yeah. clots. So that yeah. that would be, I would definitely think, not that I, we of course don't give any medical advice on this podcast. Well, <laughs> yeah. Hello. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would definitely think that there are a lot of other ways that you can use compression socks other than just wearing them at the hospital. Although... Definitely do that without a doubt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you guys just go to comradesocks.com. And when you, I guess it's when you get, get ready to check out, you just enter promo code GOODNURSE, all capitals, and they will give you 20% off. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a great deal. So we can start talking about this, this bad nurse story. I tell you, it never ceases to amaze me when I come across these. I, he, oh, it's just disturbing. Mm-hmm. I really don't understand how people can go into a field to help everybody and turn into such a bad person. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't either. And they try and, and they will try to, there's some psychologists that kind of come on board in this story to try to explain it, but I'll have a few things to say about that. But. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the story of Stefan Letter. His last name is Letter. Um, but Stefan Letter, he was born on September 17th in 1978 in Germany. So not that old. No, nope, not that old. This wasn't that long ago oh. that this happened. Yeah. So the thing is, he did have some things that happened in his in his childhood. And 
We just had an episode a couple of weeks ago where we talked about uh, a little girl who had been abused and uh, extensively abused and severely traumatically abused. And it did have an effect on her as a child, but she was able to overcome that and then ended up becoming a NICU nurse and is a wonderful nurse and, and does a lot of things to help people who have been through traumatic childhood. So I don't like it when people necessarily kind of like automatically try to find like, oh, what happened to them in their childhood if they did something bad? Because I mm-hmm. feel like it's easy to do that. It's yes, real it easy to do that. And you you can also, how many people can you line up who have done horrible things like this, who had completely normal childhoods, who had two loving parents and whatever quote normal is, you know, it was, right. which is, I don't even know what that is, but... Certainly not me, <laughs> but, but I'm just saying like you could line up a hundred people who've done horrible things. How many of them had just their childhoods were, you know, were fine and had nothing to do with that. But it, but then if you take, if you pull out a few of them and highlight, oh, this happened to them and that happened to them, and then you can attribute it to that. Those are the things that people tend to remember. And it's because, like not making them hold rec- responsibility for their mm-hmm. actions because no. it's an excuse. They're just making an excuse. I mean, could it possibly have his childhood have led him down a road where he resented people and started making bad choices and want, you know, wanted to lash out or wanted or resented or was bitter, whatever. Sure. It could have created some emotions like that or some feelings. But he made the choice. Absolutely. To, to act on those. He made the choice when he got when he was old enough to understand right from wrong. And he definitely understood right from wrong. He chose to do what he did. So his mother, having said that, his mother was thought to have been emotionally abusive. She apparently tried to convince him and everybody around him that he was intellectually disabled. He would she would take him to experts to have him tested and multiple psychologists and specialists trying to get multiple diagnoses for different cognitive disorders. And so they believe that she had Munchausen's by proxy. Interesting. Yeah. And that she was actually giving him medications that would make him seem sick. So it's just, it doesn't really say what she was giving him or even if they had any proof of that. But I just wonder if she could have been giving him something that maybe kind of made him so sort of brain foggy and can think clearly, you know? Well, back then, you know, the drug issues that we have today weren't as big, so it was Mm -hmm. a lot easier to get medications than it is now. Right. So when he was seven years old, he went to live with his father. And by this time, even though he did go to live with his father, all the stuff had happened and he kind of had those tapes playing in his in his head about himself that he wasn't good enough, he wasn't smart enough, he wasn't able to function and wasn't like other kids, didn't fit in. So he really had a lot of problems in school. Um, at some point as he got older, he dreamed about becoming a doctor, but his grades weren't good enough to get into medical school. And so it's not saying he wasn't intelligent enough that he couldn't do it. It's just that because he didn't, I guess he didn't believe in himself or he had this pattern kind of followed him. He didn't have the track record to be able to apply to medical school. One thing I thought was kind of, it was very annoying was one (laughs) of the specialists, quote specialists on there. She was like, he wanted to be a doctor, but his grades weren't good enough. So as he, um, he, he had to settle for getting into to going to nursing school. And I was just like, well, that's offensive. <laughs> yeah, that's super <laughs> offensive because nursing school is so easy. Yeah, it's he had to settle for going to, you know, really easy nursing school and just, um, you know. Well, you know, my brother is a physician. And when I was in nursing school, I struggled with, you know, the obvious pick four right answers. And he was like, well, what are you struggling with? And I was like, they give you the same answer and they want you to pick which one is best. And he was like, oh, that's weird. We don't get tested like that in medical school. It's like, oh, that's nice. I've had people tell me that before too, who, doctors, um, who, who have been, 
you know, kind of looking at the other side of it or, or people who, doctors who have nurses like, like, your, like yourself as family members. And what they've said is that medical school, the whole setup, everything about it is so incredibly different than nursing school. So it seems as though, and all of them are going to be different. So not that I want to paint everything with the same brush, but right. it seems as though it may be harder to get into medical school, depending on the medical school, I guess. But I mean, it's not easy to get into nursing school, but because there's always waiting lists and they do have high expectations for grades and that sort of thing as well. But it's, it's even, it is even harder to get into most medical schools. But if you get into medical school, of course, you have to take the MCAT, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. But once you get in, it's it's different. It's just a different environment. You know, they're not necessarily setting you up to fail, which we can right. kind of feel that way sometimes. Mm-hmm, very much. <laughs> and And the instructors, the professors will always say, we're not weeding you out. Everyone always says we're weeding you out. This is not a weed out class. You know, they that those things always go around. You know, but they're doing that, <laughs> and you feel like they're definitely doing that. How are they not doing that? Because yeah. people are literally being weeded out. So how is how is it that they're not doing that? But it anyway. I guess would you want to go all the way through nursing school and then not be able to pass the NCLEX? I mean, it's, that it's, would be devastating. Yeah, it would. So I guess you want it to be rigorous. You definitely want it to be difficult. You don't want people to be able to just easily get through nursing school and then go do the things that we do to help people in the hospital, really, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. It's hard for a reason because once you get out, it's even harder. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I was a little offended by that, but it's okay. (laughs) I get it. I mean, I totally understand how people think, how people see things. I'm not completely oblivious to all that, and it's okay. (laughs) If they've not been in it, they don't understand it. No. So he met a woman named Daniela. She had, Daniela had been uh, sexually abused by her grandfather growing up. And so she, psychologists say that the fact that his wife, because they, they did get married, had such a difficult childhood as well as he did, it really made their relationship complicated because even though that's probably brought them together in the first place and kind of created a bond, the fact that they both kind of had this difficult, traumatic childhood, there were things missing, there were pieces missing of each of them that they really needed therapy. They really needed maybe a partner who could help pull them out of that, help show them a different way. And they couldn't do that for each other because they had, and it it seemed as though the thing that was broken or damaged about Daniela was directly what Stefan was needing from her because he needed, and this was this is something that the psychologists, they had like experts on um, talking about this on the show that I was watching. And they were saying that what he was needing was the intimacy with her in order to feel like uh, she really loved him, and and they, and that I don't know that they were close, and it was a real relationship, and he and she trusted him, and all of that, and so because of the abuse she had suffered as a child, she had a really difficult time with that, and they struggled with the two, and so she needed for him to be understanding and patient about that. So she felt like, well, you don't really love me because you can't be patient. You can't be understanding if I'm not, you know, in a place where I can be intimate right now. So the two of them together were just not, they just did not match as far as helping each other fill in their, the gaps. I think, I feel like we all, don't we all kind of do that for each other? Oh yeah. My boyfriend and I are complete opposites and it's nice because where I struggle, he has, he has it and where you know, he doesn't have certain things, I have it. And so we just work very well together. Yeah, and we you kind of can pull each other up out of whatever ditch you happen to be yeah. in. And it's, I feel like that's just what works. And the two of them just were not able to do like that. And it Oil and water. Mm-hmm. So one of my friends has kind of come on to try to help me with some of my writing some of my show notes. And so she and I were watching this together yesterday and it was hilarious because 
one of the people comment, and the people commenting on this were so funny. And I think that it's because they were translating. They were having, they were speaking English, but this is Ger- this is in Germany, so oh, gosh. <laughs> it's not in any way. I'm not in any way like making fun of their intelligence or anything like these people are incredibly intelligent. They speak at least two languages. I I barely speak one. (laughs) (laughs) But what was so funny is that we were sitting there watching that. And then one of the people commenting said, he specialized in night shifts. And and Kira and I both just died laughing. (laughs) Like, how do you specialize specialize in night shifts? (laughs) I thought that was just like... Is that a thing? Like, can you become a certified <laughs> night shift nurse? <laughs> I feel like that would be a very difficult time. I don't function past nine o'clock, so night shift is not for me. Yeah, some people are just night owls and they love being up at night and it's perfect for them because they'll just stay up all night long, sleep all day, oh, and no. it works. I like to sleep at night and be awake during the day. Now, there are our time. I am a night owl. We'll have, I will say that. But so if I if I had just the, my perfect schedule, I would probably stay up until one or two o'clock in the morning and then sleep until like ten or eleven. But in reality, I can't do that. It's not realistic. So <laughs> I have to get up at like five o'clock in the morning. So I have to go to bed earlier. And then on my days off, I don't want to get myself totally out of sync. So I have to be a good girl. And be an adult and go to sleep when I'm supposed to. <laughs> the unfortunate things of being an adult. It really stinks sometimes. <laughs> so at some point, now, Stefan is working at a nurse at the hospital. Uh, he's, you know, loving his job, I guess. And the, his coworkers actually called him a good nurse. They said he was hardworking, dependable. They said he would love to pick up extra shifts. Of course, we all love nurses like that. Well, at some point, some staff members started noticing that they were having to reorder certain medications more frequently than they really felt like they should have. You know, it's kind of like, wait, why are we using so much of this certain medication? It doesn't seem like, you know, we've had that big of a need for it. So they start paying closer attention to it. And they thought maybe somebody was using the drugs to, like, either using the drugs themselves or selling them, possibly. But they were definitely suspicious about this. Now, somehow they became suspicious of Stefan because one thing that happened is a nurse was in the med room, saw these vials of succinylcholine in the cabinet, and she noted that there was maybe 20 around 20 vials, and then left. And then right after that, Stefan went in to the med room. And after he came back out, when she went back in, she noticed half of that supply oh was gosh. gone. So it was really shocking. She, it, it was very noticeable. It's not like one vial went missing. It's like 10. He wasn't conspicuous. Half. No, he probably just got really sloppy and you know, wasn't really being careful and wasn't thinking or, or whatever, but he was clearly emotionally and psychologically unstable. And so it's not like, he, he obviously wasn't making good decisions, but it's he probably just, at this point, he's kind of gone off the deep end and just with the behavior. But they didn't understand this because it's one thing to be stealing medications. That's one thing. For, or anything from the hospital. You know, we have very strict, uh, stringent uh, programs in place at the hospital and at any hospital I've ever worked at ha- has this to where things are monitored very closely. Supplies are monitored. They know when something is missing mm-hmm. or maybe not one little thing, but, you know, in general, they monitor that stuff because they know that it, there's always the possibility that people are going to be like, taking supplies out of the supply closet (laughs) and selling them on eBay. I'll never forget in in orientation when they told, when they said that, like, if you notice someone or like every year you have to do that annual education thing on diverting, you know, on the computer you go in. Yeah. And it's not just diverting drugs. It's like, have you noticed any of your coworkers putting things on eBay? That's like (laughs) medical supplies that they really shouldn't have. 
Like, why do you? Why are you selling that IV tubing? You know, it's just so weird. I just remember thinking, what? This is ridiculous. What are people doing? So this is what it, it just sort of uh, struck me as like the people who were running this hospital and um, the the manager that other nurses, how innocent they were because it, they ne- it never went beyond them, beyond just, oh, someone's stealing to sell them for money or that's what they suspected. They never suspected anything more sinister. But unfortunately, Stefan definitely had a lot more sinister intentions and things that he was doing with the medicines. And they, it's really unfortunate because they, because they didn't suspect it, there were people that died. Because of so he just paralyzing people. Mm-hmm. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. that is horrible. Yeah, and also in this video they were calling it a muscle relaxer. <laughs> so that is here, and I was sitting there going, "Are they giving a flexor?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was just so confused. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that's the case there. Don't think they were very relaxed if they were getting sucks. It was. Yes. Oh, I know. No, no, no. That's very different. But and and again, it's probably just like a translation issue yeah. because if you think about relaxant versus paralytic, and and that's probably how they translated it. And I think that maybe even the people who were being interviewed were not necessarily they were like reporters, and right. they were not necessarily medical people. So. Again, not making fun of them or anything. We we were just laughing. I mean, you know how it is. We're just laughing about it. But they did end up confronting Stefan about the missing meds. And when they did, well, they actually just called the police and the police came and arrested him because they felt like they had evidence. Just the fact that that nurse saw him, you know, saw that there were 20 vials, saw him go in, saw him leave, went back in saw clearly that they were that half of them were missing that they felt like that was good enough evidence right maybe along with other the other suspicions and everything that they could contact the police so they did go and arrest him so what happened is Stefan gets into the, the back of the police car and starts singing like a canary <laughs> and just tells them everything I mean like spills his guts to them he's just like I did this and this and this and he starts talking about all these people and they're just sitting there their mouth agape I'm sure like what is going on (laughs) we thought you were just stealing drugs what are you talking about and he's like telling them everything that he had done and it's really horrible and sad because what he was doing is he would he worked night shift of course he was a night he was an expert (laughs) night shift But but what he was doing though is he was going and he would he would find people who were obviously very vulnerable who didn't have family staying with them and I don't know if and this is Germany I don't know if maybe they didn't have even allow family to stay at night I don't know but well no they did because there was a like a ninety year old woman who told her family she said I do not feel comfortable with that nurse. I'm really scared. So I have a feeling that he's trying to do something bad. And that family did not leave that patient's side. And because of that, that patient survived. And I don't care if you're 90. I don't care if you're 9 or 90. If you want to live, it's your right to live. Nobody has the right to say that it's your time to go or that you you don't need to stay on this earth any longer or you're, you've lived enough, a good enough life. No, you have the right to say, I want to fight for my life. I want I want everything done, whatever it is. So his what he said that he was doing was pretty much putting people out of their misery. It was sort of doing mercy killings. Oh, he even said that God. many of the, yeah, he even said that many of the patients asked him to do it. Uh, but, but if they were in situations where they couldn't communicate, he would put them out of their misery. So he was, he claimed to be an angel of death. The problem with that is it's not legal. <laughs> Well, for one thing, no, it's not, clearly. I mean, that's it's not legal there. It is some places, of course, if someone is at end of life and in you know, certain circumstances, it is legal to request. these people. <laughs> right, and that's the thing. Like, there's so many things wrong with this whole thing. But the thing is, he, after he confessed and gave that whole confession, and even he asked for pen and paper, he wrote everything down. But after that, he recanted his confession 
and said, no, I, JK, I really didn't do all of that stuff. I only told you that because I was trying to cover up what I really did. And what I was really doing is stealing them in order to treat my wife who had a difficult childhood and is having a difficult time with intimacy. And so he, he claimed he was using those meds to treat her for that. That doesn't make any sense. Because if you paralyze your wife and then you're intimate with her, that's a whole nother can of worms. And how will she even breathe? I mean, there's yeah. just so many things wrong with it. I don't know. Oh, gosh. I don't know what he was thinking, whether he really did that or not, was giving her some kind of low dose of that. I, I Who knows? I hope not. But, I mean, all the things he did, I wouldn't put it past him, obviously. He's crazy. Diabolical, yeah. So he did recant, though, his confessions. The thing is, the police had already started the process of exhuming the bodies of all of these people. And so even if they were going to try to believe him, even if they literally sat there and were like, oh, oh, you you didn't really do it. Okay, rip up the confession. You're free to go, which, of course, they're not going to do that. They're already starting this process. They're not going to turn around and go back. So they figured out that there were 83 deaths during the year and a half that he worked there. Oh, my gosh. Now, now there are 83 deaths, but that's not necessarily saying that all of those deaths were as a result of his actions. So they had to exhume those bodies. Unfortunately, um, half of the 83 had been cremated, so they were not able to exhume them. So they were only able to exhume 43. These people were between the ages of 40 and 94. Oh, my gosh. They were both male and female, so there wasn't really necessarily, you know, some serial killers will have sort of a pattern. Like, right. it's all women because they, you know, you might think that he was somehow targeting women because of his mother, relationship with his mother. But it was male, female. It didn't seem to matter to him. They didn't really, they said they really didn't see a pattern. It was just almost like if he had the opportunity and he felt like he could get away with it. But they did find traces of the drug in 23 of the bodies that they exhumed. And apparently the process was really tricky because the science of testing for traces of those drugs in mortal remains was new. So it was, it's one thing to test a living person to see if they have traces, but it's another thing to, you know, exhume a body and and try to find traces of a drug. So there was a new science that they were using and they were able to to detect the drug in in 23 of those bodies. Um, He ended up admitting that his original confession was true. So he recanted his recant. (laughs) And he confessed to killing at least 16. And I'm assuming that that means he probably tried to go back and remember names of people, specific situations. But And he admitted that there could be more. When he went to trial, he was found guilty of killing 28 people. He was convicted of 12 counts of murder, 15 counts of manslaughter, and one count of illegal mercy killing because the prosecutor couldn't prove that the victim didn't ask him to do it. So, again, different country, different laws. So, I guess if someone asks you to assist them in their death and you do that, it's illegal, but it's a different kind of charge. Right. Different kind of punishment, maybe. Yes. And so they couldn't prove that the person didn't ask him. Therefore, they convicted him of an illegal mercy killing because of, for, you know, for that one. As of just a few years ago, of 2016, they were still continuing to exhume more bodies wow. of people that he had cared for because they suspect that there could even be more. If that's the case, he's like, I mean, you you have to label him as a serial killer because, yes, I mean, even though he doesn't have a pattern, he's killed that many people. That could be like one of the most prolific serial killers in history. It was. He, it was at least for Germany. Now, I guess it's been more recent that the Niles Hogel, was that his name? I did that story. Actually, it came out that he killed more people. The span of his crimes was 2000 to 2005. And I believe that they, and he had 85 plus victims. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So somehow 
he, I guess at the time when when this was going on for Stefan, he was considered at that time the most prolific serial killer. And then Niles Hogel having killed 90, at least 90 people. Um, he, yeah, definitely. Wow. So he was just a little bit after that. So, But Stefan's was just in a one-year period. Didn't you say 2003, 2004? Mm-hmm. <sighs> That'd be like almost every single one of his patients. Yeah, if you think about how often he, he must have worked and he said he picked up extra shifts, but still, it sounds like he was just, I mean, he, didn't, he just didn't care about anyone. No. Even there was, in his confession, he even talked about how there were times when he would tell the family about the death, you know, like, oh, your loved one passed away, or the family would come in to see the the, the, the body for the first time. And you know, rather than being, of course, you know, respectful the way we are at the hospital, if anything like that happens and family comes in, you, you, if, there's, if the family's not there, you immediately start trying to get all the hospital equipment off of them so that, you know, just try to make it look right. as much like their family member and less like, you know, all the stuff attached to them. You try to do whatever you can to make it as respectful as you possibly can for them. And just to think about him, he was, he said that he was very flippant and just, you know, made kind of rude comments to them when they would come in and just, I mean, the man killed these people. So I guess why be surprised at him being so callous to their family? He took their loved ones away from them. Where did he go to nursing school? How did he get yeah, to nursing school? Yeah, I was wondering school? that too, because it, it, I couldn't find where it said, you know, exactly where he went to nursing school, but I, I really doubt it was necessarily that it was a bad nursing school. I, it's probably that he's just a bad person and he he was just put on a front. He put on a yes, front. he was able probably. to fool everyone around him until he just got sloppy and they caught him stealing. The thing is, if they if he had not confessed when they first caught him stealing, the consequences for just stealing the drugs, I doubt they would have been he'd never been he had never been in any trouble before, so I doubt it would have been too incredibly bad as far as the the length of a sentence or maybe not even lose his nursing license. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I was just thinking. So he could have gone on if he had not just confessed, felt compelled to confess at that point. Who knows the other people he could have killed. But you know, a lot of serial killers want people to know this is what I did once they get caught. Yeah. And they say, you know, they want to be near their crime scenes and that kind of thing because they love the attention. That's why they do it. They seek the attention. So thankfully Mm -hmm. he did because I'm sure he would have continued like you said. I'm very thankful for that. And he was sentenced to life in prison, so he will not get another opportunity to take another family member's loved one away from them. Thank goodness. Could you imagine being one of the patients that he didn't kill and just knowing that he took care well, of think you? think about that family. I, I really, I, kudos to that family of the 90-year-old woman who was afraid because, yeah, and Stefan really used this to his advantage, but Sometimes people do get confused in the hospital. You don't have to be 90 years old and and in the hospital to get confused from or get, get delirium from just being there or being sick or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I feel like he deliberately tar- targeted people who, even if they said something about what he was doing or being afraid of him, that everyone around would just say, oh, they're just confused. They don't know what they're saying. I really appreciate this family for listening to their loved one. And even if they felt like she was just confused and and misunderstood the nurse's intentions, they didn't leave her alone. Yeah, because, I mean, if it were you and it were your family member Mm -hmm. and they were scared, just even if you're like, you know, they're probably confused, they're just making this up, you're not going to leave them. Because they're going to be even more scared I hope, without I you hope there. Not. I would hope not. You know, it just it's it's just yeah. going to be more comforting, even if they are. Just you know, it does happen. You go in there to clean up a patient, and or insert a foley or do things that are invasive and terrifying to someone who's confused. I mean, it's, it's terrifying to someone who's not confused. You know, on I wouldn't want that yeah. stuff done to me. And so to someone who's confused, can you just imagine what they must be thinking? Like, what is going on? I don't understand. And I am always aware of that when I'm taking care of patients and just 
it, they will break my heart sometimes with some of the things. I'm just thinking, please yeah. don't think I'm trying to hurt you. I'm just trying to, you know, we have to get you cleaned up. And we always reiterate that to our patients. We're just, we're just getting you cleaned up. You know, your bed's wet. We don't want you laying in this. Your skin is going to get, you know, you're going to get sore or you're going to, we don't want you to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And usually they'll kind of look at you like, okay, you know, it, you can make people feel better usually if you just use the right tone of voice and are just gentle and try to explain, even if they're confused. Well, th- yeah, I mean, think about, you know, I've had intubated patients that are slightly awake, that you're trying to wean off sedation and you're getting them cleaned up and, you know, they're trying to keep their legs closed and they're panicking. And as much as you explain to them, hey, you know, I'm just trying to help you. I'm not going to hurt you. They're, they've got ICU delirium. They're on sedation. Their brain is not where ours are, you know. We're explaining to them what they're doing, but they're not able to really comprehend what's going on. And they're just, you know, natural defense instincts. It is really true. But I, I can't tell you how many stories I've come across. My, my own son is one of them who, of people who were in the hospital and were confused and unable to talk clearly. My son had a concussion, and I've talked about this before on the podcast. He had a really bad concussion, and he was not. He would look at you and try to talk, and the words would come out all wrong. They would just he would say the wrong words, and it was horrifying for us to see him like that. He was in fifth grade, and he was just. We were scared to death. We didn't know. You don't know. The brain right. is just, it's its very intricate. intricate. It's very mysterious. And there aren't a lot of things to fix that sort of thing. And so it's very scary. Mm-hmm. But I've had people tell me, and, and Levi did tell me this, that when in that situation, they knew exactly what you were saying. They Like Levi knew what I was saying and he knew what is what Mark was saying. And he knew what he wanted to say. But he could not make the words come out. He was he, the words kept coming out wrong. He was trying to tell us he needed to go to the bathroom. We we didn't know what he was trying to tell us, and it was so frustrating to him. He kept saying the wrong words, and later on, guess what? He remembered everything. He remembered that whole conversation. He remembered sitting in the middle of the bed and, and dad on one side and mom on the other, having to hold him in the bed. He remembered trying to get out of the bed, not understanding. He he. He remembered everything. And I've read stories of people, same thing, in the hospital, completely mm-hmm. unable to talk, but they and 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 the and they could tell that the people there with them thought that they could not hear them, thought that they could not understand them. And oh, they, can, they can and they will remember. Always Absolutely. assume. Always assume. I don't care what I don't I don't care what if the doctor said that they're brain is mush and they I don't I'm not saying don't believe it, but people can people everybody's different. When it comes right down to it, nobody really knows what's going on in inside that mind and except that person laying there and you don't know if they can hear you or not. So even just having casual conversation with the person that's that's helping clean you, you know, clean them up, be careful what you say. Remember, be mindful of them mm-hmm. and say things that are encouraging to them and about them and you know, let them know what's going on. Talk to them as though they can hear you because they very well may be able to. Oh, yeah. I mean, in my ICU orientation, that was one of the things that they told us, you know, one of the last sensations that you lose is your hearing and patients will wake up and, oh, I remember this conversation. You were talking about your trip and family members ask us all the time, is it good for them us to be here? Can they even hear us? And I'm always like, yes, talk to them as if they were, you know, completely awake and cognizant of what's going on because when they wake up, they're going to remember that and it's going to be more comforting to them in the moment to know that voice is familiar to me and they're not going to be as terrified because they've got a tube down their throat. And Imagine how you would feel. You know, I've I've thought about this so many times, so many times with all of the patients that I've taken care of. Imagine how you would feel if you're laying in a bed and your eyes are open and you're able to kind of like maybe look around. Maybe you can't even focus on anything, but your eyes just sort of shift or your head turns as you're being turned. People are coming mm-hmm. in. You have no control over your bladder or your bowels. You have no control over anything. People come in, they turn you over. They, 
you're completely vulnerable. They're touching you in every part of your body. You cannot say stop. You can't say anything to them. They even don't think that you're there. They think you're not even there. Right. And you're scared to death. And you don't even know what happened. You don't remember. You're just like, why am I here? What happened? Was I in a car accident? Did I fall downstairs? What is going on? Was anyone else hurt? Is it just me? I'm not breathing on my own. What's this thing in my throat? What's wrong with my throat? What's wrong with me? Am I paralyzed? Keep that in mind. Absolutely. My mom is a CRNA now, and she's told me that breathing through the tube is essentially the same as breathing through a straw. I would panic. I I can't. Because, you know, every morning we do breathing trials. We turn off sedation. We flip them into spontaneous and see if they will, you know, breathe on their own. I can't even begin to imagine the panic. And, you know, it can be frustrating for us sometimes when they're thrashing in the bed and you're trying to explain to them, just calm down. If you want this tube out, please just calm down. But then I try to put myself in their shoes and I would be absolutely doing the same thing. I would freak out. I'm restrained. I've got a tube in my throat. It's pushing air down into my lungs. Like, it's just terrifying. It really is. So I just want to encourage you guys to think about that when you're taking care of your patients. Just keep that in mind. Because there there are many times when I, I think people do do forget and, and you know, not 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 in any way malicious or meaning to to be bad. They're just they're just doing their job. They're just you know, and they yeah. forget to hey remind the person pretend you know or think in your mind assume that they can hear you, and tell yeah. them what's going on. Remind them what happened or tell them what happened every time you go in there. Hey, you're in a car accident. You know you're you're going to be fine. You're okay. you're okay. No one else was hurt. You've been here for however many days. This, this is, you know, February 28th, 2020, whatever. However you can to reorient them, assume that they can hear you. And I think sometimes people feel silly doing that, but that's what you should be doing. Oh, absolutely. Even, you know, when they're completely sedated and you're mm-hmm. starting an IV, you know, tell them, hey, yes, you're going to feel a big poke. of course. Oh, my goodness. How scary that would be to just all of a sudden feel that that, that pain, you know? And not be able to tell you. I'm a baby. So I guess that's our bad nurse story. And on scary nurse story. I'm so excited (laughs) to have this story to talk about after that awful one because boy, this woman really helps to make up for the awful, awful stuff that he's done. This story happened in California and it's a school nurse. So I think sometimes people assume that school nurses are, they just do different things. Well, they do paperwork and they, they take temps and they take, you know, they maybe do help, you know, keep up with vaccines or whatever. Yeah, they, they do all of those things, I guess. But uh, many of them, for one thing, it takes a lot of knowledge to even just do all of those things. But they also are there in case something emergent happens. And mm-hmm. we don't have enough of them. And in, in this case... This nurse actually had several schools that she was having to go between, and she just happened, just happened to be at this one school when this happened. I cannot believe it. I'm blown away. So this girl, 16-year-old girl, all of a sudden collapsed. And so this school nurse, Kathy Papa is her name, they honored her. This just happened. They honored her uh, this month, earlier this month, for um, jumping into action to save a student. This young lady who was, oh, four, she was 14 years old, Annalise Contreras. She found her slumped over her desk, not breathing and without a pulse. Kathy said when she walked up to her, she was white as a sheet and she did not have a pulse. She absolutely was not breathing and I can't even imagine because to see this young lady standing there like that and I watched the video of her talking, it, it's just unbelievable because her heart stopped. Yeah, she could have had brain injury. Or she at least, at, at the very least, was in a very lethal arrhythmia. So yeah, she, for sure. this nurse did CPR, did shock her. So that tells me, 14, this girl had to have had undiagnosed some kind of heart failure, some kind of heart condition that was 
Congenital, yeah. And so this nurse coming coming across her like this and then doing all of the things that she had learned. She had been a hos- uh, an acute care nurse in a hospital for 27 years, worked ICU for 10 years. She was a surgical nurse for 10 years. So she, as soon as she saw her, she knew. She knew that she was in trouble and she just immediately did everything that she was trained to do. And that's, it's just amazing to me because I don't know the exact statistics, but I know that they're very, that the percentages of of times that this happens when someone really does go into a, a, a lethal arrhythmia like that out in the public, that how many times they're actually brought back, I would say the number is very low. Well, I remember uh, when I was in my ICU orientation, the CVICU educator had told us that surprisingly, the number of patients who go into lethal arrhythmias in a hospital setting is even low. Because even though they're hooked up to monitors, we don't always notice it. Well, that's disturbing. I know. That's, and then somebody else was like, there's nobody that's I'm just sitting here like, wait, I am completely flabbergasted (laughs) right now. How is that possible? Yeah. I I guess I could. It was something of that sort with, because I think it was more so not in the ICU setting and more so on an acute care setting because your ratio is one to six, one to seven. You're running around like crazy. They might not. It's been there not on the, telemetry. Yeah. Yes. They might oh, not yeah. be on telemetry. And yeah. So I'm pretty sure it was the acute care setting out and not the ICU because you have two patients and they're yeah, constantly on That water. makes perfect <laughs> but, sense now that you say that. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Because think about an, uh, an acute care nurse or med surge nurse working on a floor, having six patients. Um, five patients, six, however many they have, seven. Charting mm-hmm. forever. And so they are going from patient to patient, passing their meds and doing their assessments, charting all the things that they're doing, getting their pain medicine, mm-hmm. helping them to the bathroom or whatever, trying to monitor for acute changes at the best that they can. But goodness, you can't be in seven places at once. You're just one person. Right. And so responding to patients calling out with with acute symptoms. And so someone maybe sitting in the bed who's maybe starts feeling a little pressure in their chest, but not saying anything about it. Or something happens before they can even find, you know, Mm -hmm. their remote in the bed. Yeah. They just immediately, yeah. Just something very um, emergent and unexpected. And it happens, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So a huge, huge kudos to Kathy Papa, this nurse. I'm so thankful for her that this 14-year-old girl is alive and well and being treated for whatever heart condition she has now. And her family is so, so appreciative of this nurse. And, oh, it just makes me so happy to see that. I love, love, love the good nurse story because it's just always, it makes me feel so much better. I always go in this horrible, dark place. The bad story. I'm always just sitting here like, I'm so depressed. I just want to lay down <laughs> and turn the light off. And this just makes you feel so much better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and it's like, you know, with police and stuff, there's a bad apple every career. It doesn't matter what career you work in. But then, you know, there needs to be a light shown on the good so people true. as well. Because it's always being shine, shown, whatever the word is, on, you know, the bad, because that's the interesting story that sells and not, you know, look at this hero, look what they did. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Well, I want to remind you guys to go look us up on social media. I would like to um, hear from you if you have any stories that you've come across and where you live. Maybe you have a local story of something that happened with a medical professional. If you have any friends or family members who are nurses or definitely other healthcare workers, I would love to be able to have a respiratory therapist on sometime. I haven't been able to. I work with a lot of them, but all of them are like, I didn't want to be on your podcast. (laughs) 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 So if you guys have any suggestions for me, just feel free to message me. Um, on either Instagram, Facebook, you can email me, whatever you want to do. Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast or GMBM podcast on Facebook. And thank you, Chelsea, for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. You don't know the name of your podcast yet, right? Or have you? 
I haven't started it yet, but I'm thinking crime and coffee because I'm obsessed with true crime and I drink <laughs> coffee every I love single it. day. <laughs> yeah. And my name's Chelsea, so you know you get the C C C. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. You can do so much with that. I love it. Well, you guys be looking for that. And I'll, whenever you are to the point that you're ready to publish your first episode, of course, we'll talk about it then. And you, so I'll keep you guys up to date on when you can hear hear about that. Thank so. you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, and of course, I want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, <laughs> <laughs> be a good nurse. Yes, we're the number one trusted profession for a reason. Yes, thank you. Thank you.